Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high performance, innovation and productivity. Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off-the-shelf. And your host today is moi, TC Gill, IT Labs' Chief Talking Officer, CTO. And I'm speaking from the UK, London, a small island with a colourful track record. And in this episode, we're going to talk about CTO's voice from the banking-as-a-service industry and setting up high-performing, resilient remote teams and architectures. To talk about this, we have Taylor Lilly, CTO at White Label MFG. So what are the key takeaways from this podcast? Number one, how to treat your highly intelligent engineers. Not to get them to be task doers, but harvesting their intelligence for the best outcomes. Also, number two, communications. Communication is the key to making remote teams deliver the outcomes you want. And thirdly, how to create high volume, resilient architectures. And finally, why as tech leaders, you need a business head as well as a tech head. So, Taylor's going to share his insights from his very, very journey. He's a straight talking chap and rewinding his timeline back on his experience, you get to see his colourful journey. One that started in the United States Marine Corps. Get that. So let's not delay any further. Let's greet our guest from California, Orange County, United States of America. So Taylor, it's great to see you. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Doing well. Staying chill here in SoCal. Excellent. That's good. So thank you for offering your time. I know you're an extremely busy man. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and offering your time to kind of convey some of your wisdom and knowledge to the kind of tech community out there. Um, so to start off with it, you know, I'd just like to kind of cover some of the, some of the companies that you've worked for. Uh, and, uh, you know, because you've obviously got a nice, a beautiful track record of interesting companies. Um, so tell us a little bit about your kind of journey, your, your um, career. Sure. Um, I started off just doing some low-level programming way back in the day in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is where I, you know, turned myself into a software engineer. Um, and I worked for some larger, because of the Dallas environment, I worked for some larger Fortune 500 companies at Frito-Lay and Johnson & Johnson, um, Amerisource Bergen, the biggest company you've never heard of. <laughs> um, uh, some things like that. Uh, but pretty quickly realized that I had sort of an entrepreneurial bent in my jeans somewhere. Uh, and so moved out to Southern California, partnered with a guy here, built our own software consultancy back in that day, which is where the relationship to IT lab started. Um, and so ever since then, with one brief stint at another public company, um, it's been, you know, either like brand new startups or, uh, or mid-sized companies, um, but, but not giant companies anymore. Um, and you know, the tech, the fields of technology have ranged from voice over IP to, uh, GIS and demographic analysis. Um, then, you know, pay-per-click advertising and automation and that arena at local.com. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and most recently sort of FinTech with a heavy emphasis right now on payments, right. uh, as build out our suite of services into you know, uh, a larger array of, of fintech-oriented stuff, sort of banking as a service, I think I would call it. Oh, right. Okay. That's an interesting term. Banking as a service. Bass. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, so, obviously, it's quite a wide range of uh, experience there. For, so, from a technology a tech yeah. leader, you've kind of navigated quite a lot of revolutions, I guess, within the, within the tech space. Yeah. And I think that really was just driven more or less accidentally or serendipitously by the fact that there were demands for those technologies at that time, you know, um, we, we were eyeball deep with, with a handful of guys at IDT labs and building the, the GIS enabled, um, it's a really fascinating application and, and that company is still in business. Wow. Um, uh, they came out of 
non consulting for nonprofits, which is something I had never thought of, but um, nonprofits like uh, honestly like churches, but there are these uh, like Christian affiliated nonprofit groups that do, um, you know, sort of mission work. And it might be as simple as uh, soup kitchens or building houses for homeless people or whatever. Um, yeah. And before they do those projects, they do some demographic analysis and, and decide because they're pouring a lot of money into it. Yeah. Um, and so they do an analysis to figure out where they should spend that money to do that. Like, where do we need a soup kitchen? Just, just like a, an entrepreneur would who wanted to franchise a McDonald's, you know, yes. um, that sort of a thing. So one of the guys came out of that, one of the founders, and one of the founders came out of um, public school systems. Uh, he had been the superintendent in Irvine here in Orange County, which was, um, you know, a fairly large, well-known uh, reputable public school system. Mm. Um, and the school boards, uh, I'm going to digress a little bit into this because kind of, it was fascinating to me at the time. The school boards had the same problem. They need to do analysis to figure out, you know, are they overstaffed, understaffed? Like where are new houses going to be built? Where's the population going to grow within the city? Do they need another elementary school on this side of town? Do they need to reduce the, the number of teachers at the school on the other side of town? All that stuff. It's, yes. you know, they're, they're wielding a lot of money. And so they need some way to, you know, some data driven way to make decisions about how to allocate budget. Yeah. Um, and it had been really, really for years and years, for decades, it had been really just kludgy. I'll use that technical term. Kludgy. It was like, yeah. It was like, these, these guys that had, you know, art GIS and were basically engineers of some kind, not software guys would say, well, you know, we've got these maps and we've got your city mapped. And so give us 10 years of your enrollment data and just throw it over the wall to us. And we'll come back a year from now and give you some idea. Right? Yeah. And uh, Mike and Dean came to us and said, there's gotta be a better way. Uh, here's our vision. You know, they were like, we want a school administrator they're still going to have to give us their enrollment data, right? Mm -hmm. Just like how many, how many kids in each school by, you know, with the full address information and all that stuff. We want them to give us our data and then we're just going to load it into the system and the school board can sit at a laptop in the conference room and see a map in the browser and draw arbitrary borders for school attendance zones on it. And it'll just recalculate the 10 year projections of enrollment wow. per school in the district when they drag polygons around on the map. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And being the sort of person that I was at that age and needing clients, I was like, yeah, we can do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was, and it's the, the perspective now, you, you see things like that. You know, now we have Google Maps. Google Maps was not released when we started that project. Wow. Um, Google Maps released after we were about nine months into it, and our maps looked like crap by comparison. <laughs> so when I first saw Google Maps and how smoothly you could pan and zoom and do all this stuff, I was like, oh my God, we're screwed. Really? Like my, my knee-jerk reaction, you know, I was like, we're so hosed. Yeah. And I realized, I was like, wait, this thing, then I started playing with it. I was like, wait, this thing doesn't do any of the stuff we're doing. Like, it's great if you just want to find a pizza joint and drive over there and get a pizza, but like, it doesn't, you can't turn on and off layers. You can't zoom to arbitrary, you know, uh, zoom levels. You can't, and you certainly can't draw polygons on it and affect the school enrollment projections. So right. that, that initial like, oh my God, this thing looks amazing. Yeah. What are we going to do? You know, uh, but the long and the short of it is that we did it. I mean, we, we built a version. I did tons and tons of research and we went and found, uh, a library by some guys out of Kansas uh, right. that were also .NET developers, and they had built a library that um, that you know you put the shape files in, and it would render the maps into the um, into the browser, right. and it had a full API. So we built tools, and you could literally just draw a polygon. We we digitized the boundaries of all the existing school enrollment boundaries. Yeah, and, you know really an admin like we made it I, I prototyped the first thing and you could like remove a point from a polygon and add a point and it would just change the shape on the map sure. and then click, click go and it would do the spatial queries in the back end pull all the demographic data and new housing starts and school enrollment history and all that stuff and yes. feed it into the algorithm that Dean had specified for us yeah and it did it and it wasn't super fast in the first iteration hmm. but they took that thing out and showed it to you know they went to 
like large scale conferences for public educators. Yeah. And showed the first version of it to people and felt like they That's, freaked out. Really? <laughs> and then just like, went, went back yeah. from there. Yeah, yeah. Nobody had ever seen anything like that. It just yeah. it kind of turned that that whole concept of how to get your projections on its ear. Like yes. bears were blown away. So, so I'm kind of curious as to kind of uh, how, uh, I imagine like big data, I mean, big data has been around for a while, but I imagine uh, that was quite a challenge to uh, kind of start working with that kind of big data. And, and I mean, how did you go about uh, creating a strategy around that? Yeah, it was, it was tough. We, um, it was especially tough because we were not GIS savvy when we started. Um, so, you know, we had to figure out how to digitize the physical boundaries because the, the school districts were like, yeah, here's our boundaries. And they'd pull out a big, like unfold a big piece of paper, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it had school boundaries drawn on it, like a treasure map, you know? Yeah. Um, so we had to build a tool and then they would just get like interns to sit there and literally click and, draw the boundaries into the system when they onboarded a new client. Right. Um, and then we had to ingest all the enrollment data and we would take about 10 years of data. So, uh, you know, that sounds like a lot of data, but we're talking about school enrollment, like a number of students by modern big data standards. It's actually really small data, right. <laughs> you know, yes. yeah. um, the slog there was traditional ETL, like, crap, you know, all these addresses in this database have weird special characters in them that are messing with us and things like that. So, right. um, but yeah, then we, then we had to bring all the, you know, students into the system and, and geocode their, their located, their home addresses. Yes. Um, so that we knew where all the students lived. Um, and then we pulled in, uh, us census data and, uh, census data from private companies that also did similar, you know, polling. Um, the, the consultants from the company would go talk to, uh, the city and to large, de uh, real estate developers in the area and get that on new housing starts. So they knew where, uh, new houses were going to be built right. and all that, all that information fed into an algorithm that Dean Waldvogel specified for us in an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> wow. Really? <laughs> like, I mean, and, and he, I mean, he and Jamie both like those guys are just Excel madmen. It's the it's the funniest thing. And I finally got mad at Dean one day and he's like, Why is this so hard? I can do this in Excel. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I was like, it's different. For one thing, Excel is like, you know, treats you very favorably when there are things wrong with your data. It ignores yes. it or somehow there's some cleanup algorithms in the background or whatever. You know, there's a lot of strange things going on. I was like, but the other problem is I'm happy for you that you can do that in Excel, but Candidate administrator at a school district in Sacramento look at that data? No, yeah. they can't. That's yeah. why you're talking to me. So yeah. I get it. You're frustrated that we're having a hard time getting your algorithm to work, but it's not simple. Uh, so, uh, so, it, so I guess, sorry. It was just, it was a really fun, really interesting project. Yeah. And I guess it's interesting what you, you say there around uh, you had the obviously kind of data kind of. Uh, algorithm and thing you have to do but it's also the kind of user experience so from a from a technology perspective I mean was that was that something that was kind of quite high on your kind of priority uh, list of things to solve you know yeah I mean that you know one I was just sort of and I, I make fun of myself now at how foolish I was and I was like yeah we could do that you know we thought we will whip something out for you you know and that turned into but you know, I was calling myself a CTO because it looked good on a on a business <laughs> right. or whatever. When I went and tried to get clients or whatever, but I was basically a kid, you know, um, a smart one, but a kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, that I, I learned a whole lot about technology, and I learned a whole lot about running a business at the same time because I was working with entrepreneurs who were trying to get a business off the ground. Yes. Uh, and learning about their internal processes and their sales process and what did they have to say to people and where did they have to go and the sorts of people they were talking to and what yeah. those people liked and didn't like and you know um so it was a tremendous learning experience both uh, in terms of technology and in terms of just uh business itself yes i mean that's quite an interesting point because uh, um a lot of people imagine tech leaders don't tend to get involved in the business i mean one of the things that we advocate a lot 
here um, uh, is, is, is tech leaders kind of uh, leading a lot of kind of the business ideas and, and directors yeah. of companies. So in terms of, I mean, how did you go about learning the kind of the business ropes, so to speak? It, Honestly, it was trial by fire. Um, you know, I, I learned Jamie is the CEO of the current company that I'm at, and he was our other anchor tenant doing both voice over IP at that time. Um, and I'd say 90% of what I know about running a business, I learned from just being shoulder to shoulder with him for years. Right. Um, because we did everything internally. We built our own building system. We built our own class five switching infrastructure. I was on the calls with him to assess outside switching infrastructure that we might rent instead of spending our money to buy it. And we did rent some at some point. So we ran our own billing and our own customer service, but the switching infrastructure was outside. And then that hemmed us in because they couldn't innovate with us. And so we made that, yeah. that transition from the, you know, uh, build or buy or rent, you know, yeah. and I watched the cycle happen many times and, and I've advised clients that have come to me, um, who are in startup mode. I'm like, look, go rent something. What you're talking about building is going to be exceptionally expensive and you're going to need engineers on staff pretty much perpetually for the rest of your business life. Mm. Uh, if, if this is the route that you're going to go and you haven't proved your business model yet. So yeah. quite honestly, as much as I would love to take your money, my advice to you is go rent a system that's pretty close to what you need, cut your teeth, prove your business model, and then come to me when you actually know what you want. Because right now, honestly, yeah. you don't know what you want. Yeah. That's good. That's, <laughs> and that's I can tell by asking you a few questions, right? Yeah. So that's good. That's yeah. good advice. Kind of um, de-risk the opportunity, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they appreciate that, and they do come back. Excellent. You know, because because they didn't get, you know, I, su I suppose the upside of, you know. You know, we were laughing about how become a programmer and you'll never, um, never be looking for work, you know? Yes, yes. That actually puts, uh, you know, people in my position in a, in a, or at my level in a comfortable position that when a prospective client is coming to you or just a friend or a colleague from, you know, they're coming to you for advice, you're not starving for work. You don't have to blow smoke, mm. you know? You can, you can afford to tell people straight and give them solid advice, even if it means that you're not going to make money right now. Yes. That's yeah. going to come from a later. Well, that's, that's, quite, that's quite interesting, actually. From a, a, we, we were talking um, with IT Lab CEO, um, uh, Barney, around uh, integrity, you know, having that integrity to say what needs to be said, you know. Yeah. Obviously pays off um, to be able to say what needs to be said. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I get to shamelessly plug IT Labs here. Uh, the reason that, you know, Blacko and I have, are really good friends and have been friends for years and years. Um, and the reason that I always come back and always work with IT Labs, that's why I was saying earlier, you know, before we got started that um, pretty much every company that I've worked with in the last 15 years has at some point worked with IT Labs. Um, so I'm plugging the crap out of you guys. Check is in the mail, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, the reason is that that integrity and that trust. Um, you know, people, should you offshore? I'm like, I don't know. Do you know who you're going to offshore with? Do you know those guys? Yeah. But you know, um, it's a it's a big difference. That's right. And, and I'm kind of going off um, off my set of questions here a little bit, but yeah. I find it quite interesting in terms of uh, you know this integrity piece and and building relationships because you hear a lot of stuff about offshoring, onshoring. Uh, outsourcing and you know cons and pros and cons around that um, yeah. and so I guess the question is is that how can as tech leaders kind of de-risk that yeah so um, as, as always communication is super super key you know um, I highly recommend to anybody that's going to work with an offshore team that if you're starting a project of, of any actual size, you know, if you're just having somebody throw up a brochure page because you need people to find, it's a, it's an electronic business card for you. Yeah. Whatever. Sure. I'll source that anywhere, you know, get your cousin to do it, etc. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you're starting a sizable project, um, I highly recommend that 
you know, in my case, we're a super small shop over here. So it's, it's me. Um, I came to Macedonia. Unfortunately, I came to Macedonia just as the hammer kind of dropped with the whole, uh, you know, COVID issue. But, um, but in the past, uh, you know, even years ago when I was working with IT labs heavily all the time, it was the same thing. I came over three or four times, I think, at the outset of each new large scale project that we started with somebody. I did a whole bunch of requirements gathering, high level requirements gathering. Yeah. Um, almost more at a strategic level, you know, uh, really got, made sure that I understood the business model that my client was attacking and what their, their business objectives were. Yeah. Um, and I, and I used to write, you know, fairly lengthy, like Gettysburg address emails that would take all of that and brain dump it onto the guys in Macedonia. And then I would also come over, um, and spend some time because, um, it's amazing what gets lost in translation. Everybody that I've worked with at IT labs over the years has had, you know, solid English speaking skills, but there's still something really key about being in the room with a dry erase board and waving your hands around. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it just makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. Um, I, I had a, a negative experience of that uh, a couple of years ago. I was working with a team in Argentina. We'd been working with them for months. And I'd sent emails, I had calls and Zoom meetings and all that stuff. And I went down there, but mostly I was talking to sort of my counterpart down there. They were an outside company and they had their own CTO. Mostly I was talking to him. And I went down there one day and he came, we were about to have a meeting with the engineers. And he said to me, hey, I'm sorry, I've got to run home. He had a new baby at home, right? He's like, I'm sorry, I've got to run home <clears throat> and help my wife out. I'll be back in a couple of hours. If you want, you can just go ahead and meet with the guys. Yeah. So I went into the conference room. I've got seven people in there and seven software engineers in there. And I started talking and they're all like, they're all kind of nodding. And I turned around and I started drawing stuff on the dry erase board. And I turned around and all seven of them were just like, just mouths agape. They were like, holy crap. They had no 30,000 foot view of what the strategic objectives of this thing they were building was. Yeah. It was getting lost in that layer of management and they were getting tasked with millions of things to do and they were cranking out code, but none of them knew where we were going, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and, it, and it was evident. And when I saw the looks on their faces, I was like, Oh man, yeah, we're, we're in trouble, you know? And I was down there because things were kind of lagging and you weren't getting the results we wanted. And then I realized why, because they were all, you know, like blocking and tackling and handling minutia all day long, every day. Right. But nobody really knew what, what the machine was, what the yeah. thing was, what you were building. Not the ultimate outcome of what you were producing was kind of missed. And I, I, would, I would admonish or, or caution any, you know, tech executive or, or even at the manager level to make sure that you don't, the, the indelicate term is, you know, mushroom your software engineers. These are highly intelligent people. Yes. Right. That's what they're doing in this business. So don't, don't treat them like low level employees and just hand them tiny tasks. Yes. Like they, everybody in the trench, you know, this is from my military background, the lowest rifleman needs to know what the strategic objective of the, of the battle plan is. Yes. Right. Some of them won't get it, but yeah. most of them will, and they'll make better decisions. Yeah. You know, because they know why they're building a thing, not just what somebody told them to do. Yeah, I that, that's that's a really important point uh, from a tech leader perspective is 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 being able to kind of communicate the vision and the outcome that you're trying to achieve. Because um, again, probably from you know you've experienced this as well is that you know you get more eyes on the ball. You know, uh, if people yeah. understand what you're trying to do with the ball, then, yeah, you know, they can do Precisely. what. Yeah. Precisely. And you you know you get different cultural responses to that. You know, um, there's a, there's a cultural thing in India over and over. I hear tech leaders talk about the fact that their developers in India don't want to tell them when something's wrong. Um, it's, it's sort of ingrained in them. They're just like, no, oh, it's good. How are you doing? Everything okay? Yes, it's okay. Like yeah. they don't, it doesn't bubble up. Yeah. Uh, with Macedonians, I get a very, <laughs> very dry, like report of what's going on. Uh, and then occasionally, you know, I get it. I've worked with an engineer under the IT labs group who was just like, you don't want to do that that way. <laughs> like, and they push back. And, and I actually appreciate that. I'm not, 
you know, the sort of leader who's like, uh, it's got to be my way. I'm like, no, I'm paying you guys to be experts. Yes. So I will set the strategic objectives and I will give you my advice based on my experience as to, you know, how maybe we should attack solving that. Right. But you guys are in the trenches all day long, every day, working with the latest and greatest technology that's out there. So if there's a better way, tell me. Yeah, I love it. So from a from a tech leader, um, I'm kind of imagining that you can can design it to be this way, regardless of the culture. You know, this is what I expect from you. You know, if it's not, yeah, I think um, you know, if if you're working with a team or an organization that is not naturally prone to, you know, surface their complaints or you know, surface their disagreement, um, yeah. you've you've got to build trust early on in the game. Um, and I've often just repeatedly told, you know, the engineers, I, I like to talk directly to the engineers, um, yeah. at least on occasion, um, you know, on, on this project that we're currently working on, I talk to the engineers every day. Um, but, um, in some cases, you know, the team has been larger and there's a layer of project management in the middle and the, you know, depending on what, you know, yeah. I'm talking occasionally, but I, I try to make it very clear to them from the outset all the time, exactly what I just said, like, look, Yes, I've been doing this for a very long time, and I do have opinions about how things should be handled, but they're going to be high-level opinions. Yes. You know, I, quite honestly, I don't care if you use Angular or React. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, what are you comfortable with, and what are you going to produce high-quality code in a short amount of time using? Great. Yeah. I'm fairly technology agnostic in that sense. Yeah. Um, it'll, it'll be larger scale you know, things that I'll push back on. And usually it has a lot to do with like how to manipulate data as the data gets a little bit bigger. You know, yeah. We'll technical details, but um, because a lot of the engineers that, you know, I work with that are at this level, maybe they have five, seven years or whatever. And they're, they're very good at uh, the low level technical abilities that they have. They're good with the tools. They're good with IDE. They're good with, you know, this library or that library. Um, but perhaps they haven't worked on, larger systems that had to scale. Right. And so, um, you know, you ask that guy, you're like, well, is there an index on that field? And they're like, home, huh? <laughs> you know, you're what's right. that? You know, you're right. Uh, I'm like, yeah, the database being fast isn't magic. Like you got to put a little effort into that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, so it's just things like that, that quite honestly, I learned by getting burned. Yes. So, over the years, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. So, what, so, so what I'm hearing is from a kind of tech leader's perspective, is it's the kind of, um, especially around this kind of outsourcing, you know, when you're working with teams uh, kind of out there, uh, outside of your, you know, kind of core organization, it is, yeah. to, is to design uh, the, the relationship in a way that it's not just about them delivering some output to you. It's around getting them really collaborative in creating the solution that you want, you know, or the yeah. outcome that you want. Yeah, truly. Like I, I want them to understand. I spend, I would say, as much of my time talking to my engineers about the business as I do about tech. Beautiful. That I don't know if that's strictly true, fifty-fifty, but um, but I do talk to them about it a lot. Like I tell them, you know, this thing is getting held up because we haven't finished the contract with the bank. Like they they need to have a sense of what's going on in our office over here. They're on the other side of the world. Yes. You know. Um, and if you just get on the call with them or send them an email every day and say, not yet, yeah, you know, they're like, this guy never tells us anything, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so they, you know, I, I like for them to understand the business environment reasons why we're making the decisions that we are. Yes. Sometimes, uh, sometimes we make technical decisions that go so far as, as sometimes to just appear to be stupid. You know what I mean? From a from a pure engineer's, he's like, why would you do that? You know? <laughs> and I'm like, because I hate it, but I know it's tech debt, and I know we need this thing to work this way now, and I know we're going to rip and replace it in three months or six months. Right. You know? So yeah. I know that looks dumb now, but it doesn't make any business sense to yeah. spend the time to do it the other way. Yes. Uh, right, right now. Yeah. Know? So Sometimes that's hard to convince an engineer. Yeah, like, that's right. You know. I, what, what I love about what you're saying there, um, Taylor, is, is that 
by taking a little bit of time to, to explain, you know, where you're going with something, it kind of makes your life easier in a way from a tech leader perspective, because people understand and they're not going to fight it. They're not going to wince or uh, have a, you know, get to the coffee room yeah. and have a quick whinge at you, you know, about you. Right. Yeah. Well, on rare occasion, you know, I've made a technical decision and pushed engineers to, some, to do something that later on, I felt bad and I knew they were irritated with me because they just recoded that thing. You know, yeah. they're like, well, why did you, you know, um, but those, those decisions are pretty rare. Yeah. Um, from a technical perspective, uh, you know, we'll be nerdy for a second. Thank God that most of the modern framework frameworks for building web applications are based around dependency injection. Now it really, <laughs> it, it really gives us a huge leg up and, and, I think a lot of engineers that are coding now are unaware because they grew up like they're, they're DI natives, <laughs> they're dependency inject, injection natives, right? So every application they've ever built was that way. And they don't realize how easy that makes to rip something out of the back end and replace it with another service that does the same thing. Right. You know? um, we, we all learned that by getting burned, you know, by yes. tightly coupling things back in the day and then like, crap this is going to take us weeks to unwind yeah. you know yes. um, so it's uh it's it's a great thing <laughs> we're getting we're getting more modular more maintainable and extensible applications out of the box these days excellent um, because uh, you know dotnet core for instance like di is a first class citizen it's built that way from the beginning right know? yeah yeah um, you really don't have a choice <laughs> yes, which is, yeah. which is kind of good. It's kind of evolved. It, I, what it sounds like is, is that the industry's learnt from its own kind of, uh, you know, rough rough journey. Uh, and, yeah. uh, which kind of brings me nicely onto the kind of architectures, um, architecture question that I've got here. Um, you know, uh, uh, what, what lessons have you learnt around building high-performing architectures? As I worked on applications that, that had to scale up, um, invariably in, in the applications that I've worked on, the scale issue happened in the data tier. Um, on rare occasion, there was app tier code that was causing performance issues. But, uh, and, and to clarify, I've spent my entire career working on, on business applications. Um, right. Almost entirely web applications that serve a business need, not consumer facing, um, you know, high scale applications. So that, that's why the performance issues that I've found are bottlenecked almost invariably at the database. Right. Um, as the call detail records stack up or the credit card transaction records stack up or, you know, et cetera. Um, at local.com, we were pulling in multiple gigs like per text file, just downloading CSVs of, of uh, click level advertising you know, PPC data from um, AdWords, right? right? And uh, Bing Ads or whatever they renamed it to. Um, so that was a ton of ETL and learning tricks to try to make that process not bogged down because we're going to pull in multiple just gigs and gigs and gigs of data every day. And that stuff needed to be, you know, cleaned and aggregated and broken down and stuffed into a data mart, into an OLAP cube and all that stuff. And like, those are different performance issues that you have when you're just shoveling massive amounts of, of data around. Right. Uh, so I'll take a specific example um, or, or two general answers and then we'll talk about a specific example. Making as many things asynchronous as you can right. uh, is, is blocking and tackling, um, which uh, these days on AWS, we're talking about um, um, SQS and Kinesis. Um, and well, I guess those are two facets of the same thing. Um, so a specific example in our, our card transaction processing, credit card transactions we're talking about here. Right. Um, this is with in, the, sorry, this is with the GPG, GPG is it? Yeah, GPG, right. So, and now we're built, currently in flight on a project building the second generation of that, um, which is going to be branded under globally paid. And it's a completely just greenfield ground up rewrite. Cool. Um, starting with the credit card transaction processing. The credit card transaction processing is not rocket science, right? Um, 
but we need to be able to do a lot of them really fast. Yeah. Um, and when you start running into, we haven't quite run into the ATM problem at our scale, but um, you don't, for instance, want some knucklehead out there to spin up 2,000 threads and refund the same credit card transaction 2,000 times simultaneously before your system figures out that they just refunded themselves $50 2,000 times. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. little things like that, right? Um, so there's some interesting problems to solve under the hood, even though the, the business itself seems fairly mundane. Right. right. Um, <clears throat> at any rate, in Gen 1 of the system, way too much running back and forth to the database to get configuration that uh, that guides the, the business logic decisions about how to transact. Does the amount exceed the max ticket? Um, have they done more than a thousand transactions on this merchant account in the last hour, like rate limiting and things like that, right? Yeah. Um, and the, you know, the, uh, the core of that logic, as it stood when I got to it, had been written a decade ago by somebody who wasn't very experienced. And everything was very serial, you know? Um, and so it took forever to process a credit card transaction. And we were burning CPU cycles on the database server and the app servers. And, you know, like everything was just kind of bogged down. And I was looking at Jamie going, look, it functions. It does what it's supposed to do. Mm. But if you doubled your client count tomorrow, if you doubled your volume tomorrow, the thing would just melt. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. so, uh, it's really, really inefficient. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's fundamentals that I think most experienced software engineers know. If you can do things in parallel, do them in parallel. If you can do them async, do them async. If you can queue it and do it later, yes, do it later. And one of the things I point out to Jamie is, you know, he had specified that for his like reporting and reconciliation purposes, he had all these kind of tables that were logs of, you know, the transaction coming in the front door and the transaction going out the back door to the bank and all this stuff, you know they were reporting off those same tables. If a client came in and went to their dashboard and pulled a report, it was pulling reports in real time off the same tables where the transaction engine was writing new transactions. Wow. You know, yes. like, you know, you're fighting yourself. Yes. You engineered your own contention in this application, you know? Um, so, and it was just through lack of experience. So, yeah. um, I don't know if I answered the question. I kind of wandered around there. That's yes, cool. I, the, the thing I'm quite interested in from the kind of global payment gateway, uh, mm -hmm. obviously what you've described here is, is just the sheer volume. I mean, in terms of the process, it's quite simple, you know, you're, yeah. Yeah. but it's the, it's the sheer concurrent requests that are coming in and yeah. having to deal with that. Um, but uh, so having to, being able to write that up from scratch, I mean, that must've been quite a, a nice opportunity to, to have this, being able to uh, do a, a reiteration of, of, of stuff that you've done before. But. Yeah, the, the, the architecture of this application versus Gen 1 is unrecognizable. Right. Uh, and, it, and it utilizes a, a fairly wide array of, this is all on AWS. Um, so, you know, we're running .NET Core on Linux boxes. That's new in the last couple of years since they open sourced um, .NET. Um, we're using Kinesis and key management, or KMS, key management service, um, the S3 web application firewall, uh, Route 53, uh, SQS, right. SMS, like, you know, it's like, it's all, all, all the big blocks that are right. We're not, right now we're not doing the AI stuff and we're not doing, you know, we don't need, I, I can't remember what their voice their Alexa thing is, whatever that's called. Yeah. Um, we're not using stuff like that right now, um, but who knows, we might in the future. Yes. We might have clients calling and talking to an IVR, you know, you know, if you'd like to check your balance, say balance, you know, who knows, we might be doing that stuff in the Ooh, future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, this, this needs to be highly, highly available and it needs to be fast. Yeah. Know? Um, so we're going to be in multiple, you know, have multiple app servers and multiple availability zones all tied together. And then, and then we have those problems to solve of, of synchronicity, you know, wherein if a, if a refund, I'm going to use the refund example again, if a refund is hitting the load balancer in Virginia, yeah, 
and getting refund because somebody's trying to mess with us is also hitting the load balancer in Oregon in a different availability zone. You know, somewhere there needs to be a distributed mutex so that we can make sure that their their account so something needs to be locked, some locking mechanism, so that you can't refund the same transaction at the same time. Yeah, it's like yeah. a mutex of some sort, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we're going to try to do that on native AWS sources. Um, I've got a buddy who's a CTO who's uh, super experienced in the payment space. He likes a product called Hazelcast. Uh, wow. It's a like a um, in-memory data grid. Uh, he refers to it, and it's kind of built for that sort of a thing. Um, haven't haven't played with that yet, but we might. So a little nerd nugget there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll do another podcast on that one. That sounds yeah, cool. yeah. So I, I don't know that much about it. Oh my god, Jason will talk your ear off about that. <laughs> uh, I've been doing payments for a long time uh, yeah. at the CTO level, so uh, I, I lean on him heavily in yeah. these sorts of matters. So uh, I just. I've just, um, yeah, I've just kind of um, suddenly started to understand the gravity of, of dealing with these kind of large amounts of data and geographically located in different, you know, data coming in from different regions and, and yeah. being able to lock accounts. Because we're not talking small bucks here, you know, we're talking huge amounts of money. If something kind of goes skew with, you know, from a security perspective, it's... Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, individual card transactions from consumers, you know, the, the average ticket is probably in $40 or something like that. You know, no individual transaction is very large. Yeah. Uh, but as we scale up, um, you know, we're providing interfaces wherein our clients who are, you know, SMBs doing, you know, minimum 10, maybe 100, maybe $300 million a year mm -hmm. um, volume. And on any given day, uh, you know, we're reflecting their corporate balances to them on their on their merchant account, which are in the multiple millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, they've got to be able to move that out to their corporate bank accounts and do things. And that's where we'll really start to build out our suite of services. Yes. Um, is we'll say, well, look, you know, like all your revenue is coming through our gateway. So just let that sit there. We're not a bank, you know, we've, we've got sponsor banks behind us, but we'll just say, just leave that money sitting there like, you're gonna, you're just gonna move it. I mean, if you need to move money to your corporate accounts for some reason, do it. But if you just need to pay a vendor in China or, or you know, Philippines or wherever it is because you bought some T-shirts there to be printed in some other location, you know, whatever, you know, whatever their business is, um, just use our interface. Just send the money straight here. Yes. You'll get FX rates from us than you will from your bank anyway. All right. Um, you know, because we're we're in it for the making the the transaction fees and the, and the margin on the credit card processing. Yes. Uh, you're going to get favorable rates on that. And we're not going to charge you to move money out. We're yes. going to charge, we're not going to mark up the foreign exchange rates to move your money to another country. You're going to pay a small fee and razor thin, you know, FX margins. Yeah. So you just leave, leave the money here where you're banking the sky as we, you know, informally call it. Love it. At the office, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's the QuickBooks, and we'll integrate with. Um, I can't remember what the other big one is called. My buddy was just talking about the other day. Some of the larger, you know, not SAP, but the big common, um, you know, accounting as a service, sort of like QuickBooks online, etc. Yeah. So yeah. That you can just wing invoices back and forth to our system and pay and get paid, you know, directly. Um, so that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of quite cool. It's kind of solving a problem for the for the industry as well. And uh, you know, um, it uh, it seems to uh, well, you, you're looking after you're looking after your kind of uh, your people as well. You know, your end customer. Um, yeah. So the other area that I'm quite curious of, because they're going to share quantity of information, probably. How do you kind of deal with kind of disaster recovery? Well, how 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 do you manage that? How do you even start? Yeah. Um. Well, the good news is that on AWS, we've got massive redundancy from the get-go, right? Um, so, you know, every, every DR plan has to be kind of tailored to whatever your business model is. In our case, um, lots, of the, lots of the data that's in our database behind the application is really just configuration data that almost never changes, right? right? Um, then you've got the transactional data that's affecting balances and whatnot, right? 
Mm. So we've got tons of redundancy there. That stuff is getting written to queues and then processed later. And that has retries and it's, you know, raw logs are written here and there to S3. And, you know, there's like that data, we're actually probably creating four times as much data on disk through the cloud wow. as is strictly necessary um, because we've got so much redundancy in that way. You know? Yes. Um, AWS better do their job <laughs> per yes, the marketing right. field because we're, you know, we're leaning heavily on them to, uh, to provide that 11 nines of, of uptime that they talk about all the time. Yes. Um, and then of course there's standard, you know, backing up all of that transactional data out of the databases and, and sure. you know, but yeah, you're right. In our business, you know, being offline turns into a material hit to the bottom line very quickly. Yeah, I can, yeah, it makes my head hurt thinking about it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and in terms of, um, so I, I, again, kind of digging deeper into the kind of technical side of things. So in terms of that redundancy, I mean, do you do like kind of two path redundancy or is it kind of multiple paths? Uh, um, yeah, so, you know, if you want to try to picture the application architecture diagram, we've got, you know, in the old days, we called it a web farm, I guess. You know, we've got multiple sets of app servers behind load balancers in multiple availability zones. Um, at, at present, only in North America. Yeah. Um, we're, we're not going to move anything to availability zones that are off the continental U.S. Um, yeah. Immediately, anyway. Uh, so, you know, we'll have East Coast and West Coast. And as we feel it's necessary, we'll add... Um, infrastructure and availability zones. Uh, right now, I, I don't know that the cost is really going to work out for us. Uh, at the moment, we're going to get started on the new serverless Aurora um, multi-AZ clustered. Um, so that should be kind of interesting. I think that probably the just pretty much immediately as we start to load the application, um, that's going to be too costly and we're just going to go to a traditional rent by the hour multi easy right. cluster. Uh, but you know, we're going to be cutting our teeth on the first low level production volume on this system in the coming month, probably. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want some giant multi AZ cluster back there burning dollars and my CEO is going, why am I getting this giant bill every <laughs> month and we're not doing any, any yeah. volume, you know, it's yeah, going to nip that argument in the bud. Yeah. So. Well, that kind of, it kind of segues into a nice area because one of the things you don't, uh, from a you know, technical leader's perspective, that they obviously are experts in the, in the technology side. But what I'm hearing is that there's a kind of financial side to it as well. So the, the decisions you make in terms of your architecture are going to yeah. have a huge impact on that. Bottom, yeah. you know? Well, and it's, there's so many tiny things to look out for. Uh, you know, when you're in the cloud, the way things are built, um, you know, everybody's kind of hyper-focused on uh, just your hourly rate on your EC2 instances, for instance, right? Because that's a that's a big line item, depending on your application and how it functions. That's yeah. probably the meat of your bill every month. Um, but if you're doing super high transaction volume, as we intend to do, and you're using something like DynamoDB that's costing you per, I forget how they're doing it now, like per bytes that you're moving in and out of DynamoDB tables, um, you could just have an inefficient sort of, I don't know what to call that, just an inefficient implementation in the way that you use DynamoDB and yeah. you could wait for a month and just be like, holy crap, <laughs> like, what are, what are we doing? Like, you know, and, and you'll very quickly feel the pain and go, why are we, that data never changes. Why are we not caching that? Yes. You know, yeah. um, so, or, or why are we making three calls to DynamoDB when we should simplify the data model that we're storing there and make one call. Beautiful. You know, yeah. Uh, that, that sort of thing. Right. And, uh, and, in, and in terms of being able to kind of see the kind of visualize where the cost is going, how, how do you do that? Cause I mean, imagine there's lots of points where that cost builds up as you mentioned here, you know, three calls. Yeah. So, you know, AWS has done a pretty good job and, and honestly, uh, th this will be the first time, in a while that I've run an application of this size on AWS. And I noticed uh, recently that a lot of the things that you used to have to go to a third party 
uh, tool to kind of mine your own billing data out of AWS is now built directly into AWS. Oh, wow. Um, those third parties are probably unhappy about that. Maybe they got acquired. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, AWS has, has reasonably quickly, in my estimation, been adding better tools so that you can drill into your bill on AWS and see, you know, where, where am I burning money? Yes. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's funny. And that's what, you know, if you think of traditional architects, you know, um, like building architects and everybody likes to think about the, the artifice of the beauty of the building that they bent or whatever, build the things that you see on the surface, but architects are trained in materials and construction and, you know, they have to, they have to think about all those things. Um, and that's, that's where we end up here too. It's not just how it looks on the surface, but the CEO cares how much it costs to run this thing every month. You know, hopefully in our business, you know, we'll make it a truth that, you know, the AWS bill is just going to be a funny little footnote <laughs> to, to us, you know, but, uh, which it, it should turn out that way. Sure. But I'm always telling you that I'm like, even, even the engineer salaries in the end, you're going to be like, it's not even going to register. Right. You know? Uh, yeah. if, we, if we do this right so <laughs> and, and and so it's the advice to the tech leaders out there in terms of having this kind of financial um aspect of your role you know because a lot of stuff is ending up in the cloud um would you say that technology leaders actually kind of embrace that wholeheartedly or is it something that people are learning the hard way uh, which the the, the the tech leaders out there so for example obviously you're you're switched on when it comes to the cost of certain aspects of your architecture you know yeah 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 um yeah again you know unfortunately that comes from having been burned you know? <laughs> right uh jason the other cto that i was referring to he was just kind of messing around he doesn't use aws he's the sort of nerd that wants to build his own free bsd kernels from scratch and blah blah, blah you know um but he was just trying to prototype something and i think he turned on their uh hard hardware HMS hardware management service something like that it's like a, a hardware module that handles encryption and decryption behind the key management server mm. I forget what the other acronym is well those things operate as one of those like pay per hour cluster I believe he turned one of those things on just playing with it one day and walked away and like a few days later realized he had like a three thousand dollar bill on AWS wow. yeah. for something he's just poking at you know uh, he's not not cloud savvy he's never operated on that sort of infrastructure he must buy his own hardware and rack it up himself and all that stuff you know yeah um, and you know his application is going to get to a level of scale wherein he's probably going to be glad that he went that direction yeah but he has not worked in startup environments or in tight budget environments before he's worked at larger companies and so uh, he doesn't have that perspective that I have wherein I'm like, dude, you need to prototype this thing because you haven't, you haven't proved your model yet. Yeah. Like do it in the cloud, do it fast, do it inexpensively, make sure you can actually do the business you want to do. Yeah. And then you can start ripping and replacing layers and build, buying your own hardware and stuff if you want to, you know. Yes. Yeah. He's um, kind of waterfalling it, even though he's on a, on a startup budget. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's cool. Yes. Good luck, dude. I hope you swim before you sink. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so just going to, uh, kind of mindful of the, of the time that we have together. And, um, I, I, another area that I want to ask you about, uh, from previous conversations, you know, is around, around teams and, and how, how you make them high performing teams. I mean, what, yeah. what would be your advice to kind of, uh, for the tech leaders out there? on your experience. Yeah, I think, I, I think we touched on some of that stuff topically earlier. Um, and my primary advice, that first advice is what we talked about earlier is make sure that your the, the grunts in the trenches know the battle plan, right? Um, work with a company that you trust, <laughs> yep. you know, because you don't want to burn time and dollars working with some guys that are BSing you. You know, oh yeah, we'll have that tomorrow. Oh, yeah, we'll have that tomorrow. Tomorrow turns into three months and then what they hand you is nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, 
I'm not eaten up with all of the pageantry of agile project management um, in the sense of everything having to be done by the letter of yeah. uh, the manuals. But, you know, it's funny, I, I look at what we're doing with Scrum these days and it's pretty much what we fell into naturally Wow, 15 years ago. Um, the word agile was out there. It wasn't the buzzword bingo word that it is now, um, but it just agile project management processes really just reflect the reality of how your project is going to end up getting managed anyway. Yes. Like you're going to wind up with the, the, the business owner, you know, the stakeholder um, coming to you on a daily basis and changing things or wanting to see what you've done and wanting to steer it. Right. Yes. Um, so, you know, there's there are two facets, I suppose, to getting your project to be as efficient as it possibly can be. One is making the engineers efficient, yep. you know, at their desk with their hardware, with their IDE, you know, making sure they've, they've got everything they need and they're not blocked and, and that they're getting fed requirements. Yeah. Because um, over and over and over again, every engineer you've ever talked to or I've ever talked to, you ask them what's wrong with the project and like, we're not getting good requirements fast enough. Yes. Every time. Yes. Because the engineers know how to write code. They gotta know what to build. What to build, you know? yeah. So, and you guys can go ask Angela and she'll laugh and she'll be like, oh yeah, Taylor was not getting us requirements fast enough. She probably, she might still say that today. Yes. Uh, you know, but I always explain to them, I'm like, look, I'm stuck in this banking industry thing over here. Like everything, all the business requirements are always held up by the business because there's always something that hasn't happened yet, some meeting that hasn't happened yet. And so we're doing the best we can to build all of the infrastructure that we know we're going to need and make it modular so that we can pivot if something mild changes at the end. I mean, we know where we're going, mm. but there's details in there that we're not sure of yet. You know? Yeah. So make, make sure you have open communication. Make sure that your engineers are allowed and, in fact, incentivized to tell you when things are wrong. Cool. Um, you know, uh, it's the, the, who was it? Toyota that figured that out. Like every, every employee in a Toyota manufacturing facility is, has the right to hit the big red button and stop the conveyor belt. Yes. You know, that's, that's what you want. You yeah. know, um, you don't want to build a negative feedback loop wherein your engineers won't tell you that things are not designed properly or yeah. that something missed or that something's broken because they're afraid they're going to get hit with a stick yeah like that's not no let me know let me know early let's yeah. fix it and let's move forward you know so um, from from your from your perspective then i'm kind of curious how did you learn that obviously the, i mean it sounds really obvious as you describe it that to allow people to do this but you don't always see yeah. this in the industry um you know i don't often tell people that i learned anything in the military um it's might seem like an odd parallel, uh, but many, many years ago, for four years, I was in the Marines, and one of the things that struck me early on in my training, now, this didn't always strictly happen <laughs> in reality, but doctrine was, uh, you know, the metaphor that I used earlier, that every rifleman should know the battle plan, right? Um, and it's really important, uh, especially when, you know, might piss off some uh, prior military, <laughs> but, but uh, let's just say that the mean IQ in the trenches is not comparable to the mean IQ in a software engineering facility, right? Um, you're you're dealing with highly intelligent, highly trained people, um, and so to treat them like they shouldn't or can't understand the, the strategic objective is a disservice to the whole organization. Yeah. Um, so let everybody know this is where we're going. Yeah. This, is, this is the desired end goal, right? Everything that we're doing and every decision we make all day long should service that yeah. strategic objective. Because um, we've got all day long every day to nitpick tiny technical decisions. Yes. Right? But let's not lose sight of you know where the, the bigger where picture. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how, how often do you kind of reiterate that vision? Because I'm a big believer in, in visions and, and repeating them to the point where it becomes almost ridiculous because you, know, you need to remind people. 
Yeah, I, I probably don't repeat them often enough. Um, you know, every every once in a while, it's good to just have a a high level talk. You know, um, like the team that I'm working with right now is only two engineers, mm. yeah, two engineers, fingers on the keyboards, writing code, um, and you know, a DevOps engineer helping glue everything together, all the CI/CD pipeline and all that stuff. Yeah, um, I think we're about to add a third, and over time, it may grow a little bit as we start to like really kind of work in parallel on a wider suite of of services for our clients. Um, but uh, it would, the point being the team is small and it would be easy for me to just, you know, once a week when we're having our, our daily call anyway, just sort of reiterate, don't forget, this is where we're going. Yeah. You know, um, I think, uh, I think they have a fairly good vision. Um, I did come over there a few months ago and, you know, we kind of talked through all that stuff. Yeah, um, we're we're finally about to start passing to production traffic here in the next few weeks. So I know they're excited, and I'm excited because we want to kind of see this, want to push this thing out of the nest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And see uh, see it take some traffic. So that's good. So it's been a really interesting conversation, Taylor. I mean, you know, obviously you're highly experienced, and you work on some pretty cool stuff. Um, so in terms of uh, our audience, our, our tech leaders and, and aspiring tech leaders out there. What would be the main takeaway that you kind of like to leave them with uh, for this conversation? Mm. Well, we ranged over a bunch of topics, um, but I, I think in terms of working with with offshore companies or, or teams and all, actually, um, would be again that that shared vision and strategy on each of your projects. Um, you know, every application and, and every project has its own technical hurdles that you're going to have to, um, mm. to address. Um, and those are going to be, you know, very specific quite often to whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. But the common thread across all the technologies and all the projects that I've worked with is getting the most out of my engineers by making sure that they know what it is that we're actually trying to accomplish, yeah. not just this file uploaded to this server and then pushed over there yeah wow <laughs> why what are we gonna do with that yeah. you know yeah. um so keep keep hammering that home and also uh just a sort of a general adage for me is like don't don't use technology for technology's sake uh it's easy to let your engineers go off on what we used to jokingly refer to as bdd or boredom driven development Right. You know, every, 20, <laughs> every 25 year old who's got more IQ than he knows what to do with wants to grab the latest tool yeah. and the, the coolest new open source library and try to do something with it. And I know it, sounds, it makes me sound like a grumpy old man, but I'm just <laughs> like, why are you doing that? There are perfectly good tried and true tools that do this mundane thing that we're trying to do. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, we don't need all that stuff. Yeah. Let's let's leverage the open source community and, and those sorts of things when we actually have a problem that we're trying to solve yeah. that, that that library or that architecture or whatever was intended to solve. Sure. Yes. Yes. Let's not, let's not use it for its own sake. Because we no, that's right. I, I have to confess I've worked on projects where uh, software engineers uh, and engineers in general we're very curious kind of creatures and, and we want to find new cool things to do. As you say, what did you call it again? Boredom? Boredom-driven development. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> I worked on a project once where the uh, they were producing this product, embedded product, and they'd written it all in C, and then C++ kind of came out. And yeah. I was shocked. They stopped everything and then rewrote it all again in C++. Yeah, and why? Why? <laughs> it was kind of pretty why? cool, but um, yeah. you know, I was like, that, that, even then I thought something's not right here, you know, but yeah, excellent. So thank you, Taylor. It's been really, really, uh, you know, interesting and, and, and I've learned a lot of stuff. Hopefully our audience has, and, and hopefully we'll have you on again on, a, on, a, on another podcast to explore yeah. maybe that cool subject you were talking about earlier on. <laughs> Let's do that. All right. Thank you very All much, right. Taylor. Cheers. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was great speaking to Taylor. It's a pity we didn't start recording the podcast earlier, actually, 
Me and Taylor had a wonderful conversation with some real straight-to-the-point nuggets of wisdom. In any case, what we did manage to capture in the recording proper was more than enough, don't you think? I like how Taylor covered the subject of remote teams. Unless you've been stuck under a rock in the last six months, remote teams have become a big thing. In many cases, the only thing. And getting the most out of them is an art. I like the insights that Taylor shared here. Well, if there's anything that struck your interest here and you want to get in touch with Taylor, you can use the contact details provided on this page. And remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get to get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs to do that can be found on this page as well. We're consistently creating material to create, support and nurture a tech community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs and the services that we provide, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off-the-shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after yourselves and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening wherever you are in the world. From everyone here at IT Labs, live well and prosper!